from Common Good Iowa, this is A Deeper Dive, the Iowa Policy Podcast. I'm Ann Disher with Common Good Iowa. Today on the podcast, we're talking about the issue that has really dominated the Iowa legislature so far, public education. I'm thrilled to be joined by two of our partners who are in the trenches on all the issues affecting public schools in Iowa, Melissa Peterson with the Iowa State Education Association and Margaret Buckton, who represents the Urban Education Network and the Rural Schools Advocates of Iowa. There are threats to Iowa's longstanding commitment to a quality education for every child on multiple fronts right now. Those include school funding, vouchers, and charter schools. I want to unpack each of these issues and really dig into what they mean for public education in their totality. Margaret and Melissa, thank you so much for joining me today. Clearly, there's uh, no rest for the two of you at the legislature this session, huh? Yeah, not, not at all. It's, it's felt like uh, it started gangbusters and then just got faster. Yes, go, go, go. Lots of, <laughs> lots of bills. I, it is certainly, I think, where we've been spending the most of our time thinking about all the legislative work we're doing. I think the education issues have been sort of where a lot of our time has gone. Um, and, and what I'd love to do today is really dig into a few of the, the, the kind of really important issues that lawmakers are debating right now. Um, and we'll get into some of the details on those. But I would love to start at a little bit of a higher level. And um, it just get your impressions of the totality of the kinds of bills you're seeing related to public schools at the Capitol this year. Like what, what's, what's really happening with public education? Well, Melissa, I'll jump in here first. Um, You know, in any given year, the school funding debate is always a huge endeavor to figure out what investments in our public schools are necessary to give our students the opportunities they need. And then add to that, Um, recovering from a huge derecho that took out school buildings in part of the state that had to go virtual and then a pandemic and how that changed um, instruction, what teachers had to do, what students and families have to do. And then add to that the weight of the school choice bill that came out of the Senate and the governor, Senate File 159, that really has a primary focus on providing um, other things, not public school investments, but um, other opportunities for parents and families. And I think the weight of those things combined has been massive. And um, I would say not just frustrating, but very disappointing. Yeah, I think I would add on to that. It's really hard, um, particularly given the pace uh, with which some of these pieces of legislation um, are moving for it to not feel like public education um, isn't under attack, uh, quite frankly. I think um, I perhaps had naive expectations coming into this legislative session, just given, I think, how much appreciation we saw expressed from the general public about the important work that education professionals do on a daily basis as we met the unprecedented challenges during the pandemic last year in terms of just, I think, the elevated importance really that was illustrated in terms of the purposes that public schools serve in their communities. And then to walk into the legislative session um, and frankly, by the end of the second week to just have a number of pieces of legislation um, unveiled that I have to tell you, we, we were not consulted <laughs> um, as they move some of these pieces forward. I think, um, I appreciate we're gonna get into it here shortly, but when the governor revealed her vision uh, for education policy and just thinking about the different ways we could have gone about 
truly addressing important issues um, in an education omnibus bill and to know that we didn't have an opportunity for any input was 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 a challenging way to start things off. Well, let's let's do dig in to some of the details of, of the governor's vision and, and lawmakers as well. And I, I think um, maybe we should start by talking about about funding. Um, although I think when we think about all the various issues we're going to talk about, really, it's all really around funding in different ways, but to talk about the, the formula. And um, I, I think it would be helpful to start by just reminding folks in a very 30,000 foot way level, kind of the basics of how we fund public schools in Iowa, and then what, you know, what the funding proposal is for this year. Sure. So the the funding formula in Iowa is based on enrollment. So we count all the students in school districts on October 1st, and then the legislature comes in the next winter after that enrollment count, sets a cost per pupil, and that cost per pupil is expressed as a percentage increase. We know it as state supplementary assistance or SSA. So that percent increase is what is now considered in those two bills, one in the House, one in the Senate. And, um, and then the way that works, the next school year, school districts get that budget based on their prior year's enrollment, plus this other little thing that's really important this year. Sometimes it's not so important, but it's called a budget guarantee. And it's, it works as a cushion so that school districts can gradually phase down staff when enrollment drops. But this year in particular, be, uh, primarily because of COVID, uh, statewide, we lost 5,923 students. And so school, we expect many of those students to come back next fall and this budget that we're putting together just to, to serve them has to provide for enough staff to meet the needs of those students. And in addition to that, and I know important to your organization, we also lost about 4,000 preschool students, which parents kept home because you know it's not compulsory to go to preschool as a four-year-old, um, but those students are gonna either enter kindergarten with no preschool experience, or you know we can allow a five-year-old in preschool, but there's no funding for them. So we have huge challenges in, in figuring out how does this year's budget set us up for success next, next fall. And, uh, and the proposal at the legislature, how well does it do at setting us up for success in the fall? Well, there, there are two different proposals. The Senate is a 2.2% increase in that cost per pupil. And the House is just, a, it seems a little bit higher, 2.5%. Um, it's not that much more, but, um, but it does provide the House's proposal, I think is about $10 million more statewide when you consider everything they're doing combined. Um, in comparison to the house. So that budget guarantee uh, that I mentioned, that's paid primarily or totally by property taxes. So the proposal at the 2.5%, the highest one, um, would give us uh, uh, 137 school districts. So 137 out of the 327 would have that shift to local property taxes, increasing property taxes by almost $26 million statewide. If they would put more, you know, 30 to 40 million more into the formula, that would drop to a normal level of property taxes that's under 10 million all in. Um, so from that property taxpayer perspective, the formula, this isn't a high enough amount to do that. Well, and if I could just contribute to that conversation as well, I mean, in terms of how it sets us up, I would say it sets us up poorly. Generally speaking, it does not keep, uh, you know, pace with the uh, cost of inflation or the cost of doing business uh, on a, 
just kind of a general basis. We know that we need an investment of larger than 3% in a regular year just to keep up with the, the rate of inflation. And not only is this not a regular year, Right. But um, we, we do know because of the decline in enrollment related to the pandemic that um, we, we are facing even more challenging circumstances. Um, and so from ISDA's position, uh, both proposals are inadequate, though comparatively um, 2.5 is better than 2.2. <laughs> right. But um, uh, we just think, especially in a year when we have, as a state, more than a billion dollars in reserve between the rainy day fund and then another $300 million across some other reserve accounts, this is a year when we can afford to make a larger investment, especially understanding we are going to have further formula challenges moving forward as those pupils come back into our school systems um, as, as COVID hopefully kind of resolves itself. It's, it's a little hard to imagine that um, in the context of a rainy day fund that it's not raining right now. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's really hard to imagine a situation that would more lend itself to using a rainy day fund. And the amazing thing about that, Anne, they don't even have to use the rainy day fund. They have enough surplus. They have um, solid revenue growth estimates coming in. Um, they have tax policy choices that they're considering. You know, a good example of that, and we'll get into the governor's school choice bill in a minute, but there's a $51 million expansion of the tuition and textbook tax credits that primarily benefits um, private school families and parents, and they already have several other resources available to them in that, in that vein. If that $51 million were added to this funding for schools instead, we would be just above what, we, what the average year in the last 12 years has been, about 95 to 100 million is the amount that is typically invested in public schools every year. Um, this year, all in with the one-time funding and everything in those proposals, it's just over half that. So it falls far short of what they usually do and there are resources available. Well, and I, I do want to go back to the 2.2, 2.5% I think I, I would just love you know, I would love some help putting that in context of past years and then putting it in the context of the need. And I, I, maybe we started getting at that, but what, you know, what does that look like? Like, what does that look like relative to what we've done in the past? It falls short. It falls well short. Um, and I think that's something that's important too. And I appreciate it's a little weedy, but 2.5 or 2.2 this year is not uh, from a dollar perspective, the same as 2.2 or 2.5 in a previous year, again, because of the enrollment adjustment. And to Marga's point, I mean, at the point where we go back and look at a, you know, a decade or a 12 year long period, and we see what the average investment was at approximately 90, $95 million. And that was still inadequate because it didn't even average out to be, you know, three plus percent at that point. We're still just over 2%, I believe on an average basis. And um, again, that's why we have seen a decrease, for example, um, in programming offerings at the school district level, right? We're not fully funding some of our extracurricular opportunities. We're seeing class size growth. Um, we're seeing more and more positions, frankly, being forced to be shared across districts because districts um, are having challenges affording their own school nurse, for example, or school counselor, school social worker, what have you, multiple positions. And so, um, and then as we get into this supplemental one-time uh, monies uh, situation, both with the Senate proposal and also with the House separate supplemental proposal, what I find to be quite challenging is the lack of equity 
in the distribution of some of these resources, which in my experience as a lobbyist, both on behalf of the Iowa State Education Association and also as a multi-client lobbyist before I joined the association, I frankly have not have not seen such legislation proposed in this fashion, particularly as it applies to chapter 257, which is related to financing of school funds, right? That's the premise is to make sure those resources are distributed in an equitable and equal fashion. Well, to me, this is, and I know the work we've been doing at Common Good Iowa is really trying to tease out the equity issues and all of this. So I think this is just a really important piece of this. Um, And I, I would love for you both to talk a little bit more about this issue and what you're seeing in this legislation that would counter equity goals. Yeah, sure. I'll weigh in on that. Um, in the, the one-time funding portion, which is $29.8 million in the Senate and $30 million in the House, so just about the same number, but the distribution formulas are different. In the Senate, it is $65 per pupil to any district that was in complete compliance with the requirements from the state regarding a virtual or in-person learning. And the way it's written, the only district that wouldn't qualify for that $65 per student is Des Moines. And Des Moines, uh, their, their school board, their superintendent, their community worked with their public health department and tried to set an expectation for um, engaging virtual learning until such time as they could reopen schools safely. Not unlike many of the urban centers around the nation that have very crowded hallways and may have more senior staff with more health conditions. And you look at all of those challenges combined with um, both high concentrated minority populations and families with lower income, both of which tend to have less quality healthcare, may not have PPE, may not be able to work in a job that provides them safety. So the exposure to COVID is certainly of greater potential in an urban center. And so this, this bill, instead of acknowledging that there may be extraordinary needs for those students in Des Moines, kind of does the opposite. Um, Senator Sinclair's statement at the end of the debate um, in the committee yesterday was holding the superintendent and elected officials accountable for decisions that they made. Well, and if I could hop in here too, I mean, there are a couple of things, well, there's lots of things that are challenging about this, but I think Um, two things that are important for folks to realize. One, we are having this conversation, what, a mere two weeks, week and a half after, frankly, we had to listen to a lot of floor debate uh, and committee discussion about how important it was to make sure that kids had access to a quality education opportunity. Um, From Senator Sinclair's perspective, that's why it was so necessary for them to pass the voucher bill, right? And yet here we fast forward a week and a half, and instead of focusing on the importance of making sure that the student has access to resources, um, and that this, that this, I mean, it would short the Des Moines School District by what, $2,080,000, right? Every penny counts, particularly in a district that has so much diversity and just general challenges uh, and services that it provides. And the second thing that I also find to be super challenging is that the very day this bill was delivered, the Des Moines School District had an approved plan by the Department of Education to make up and address any loss of instructional time. And that was an agreement that um, was was you know, developed and agreed to by the management within the district and also the educational professionals in the district. My folks sat at that table and had adult conversations about what we needed to do um, 
uh, to make sure uh, that everything was done for the best of the students. And that included, for example, my folks um, giving up in-service days, right? Professional development opportunities and having conversations about what we were gonna do to address those issues moving forward. So the district, to Margaret's point, did what they thought was best for the safety and the health of their students and their staff um, and, and make those local decisions. And frankly, I think they were prepared to deal with whatever penalty came next, but I don't think they ever thought that the state would attempt to authorize the weaponization of the appropriations process and take it out on the kids instead of addressing it um, at the management or the, the school board level. Well, this seems like a good point, actually, to transition to talk about um, a couple other elements of of legislation that that are related to schools. And I, I'm thinking particularly about um, vouchers or you know school choice, and then um, charter schools because I, I think the equity issues are 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 embedded in these issues as well. So first, maybe let's let's remind folks about the vouchers, what they are, what the proposal would look like. They call them students first scholarship opportunities. Um, we call them vouchers. And in the division one, so, so one misnomer I will just put out there is Senate file 159. We were, you know, many people refer to it as the voucher bill, but in fact, there are eight divisions to that bill and vouchers just happen to be among the most egregious to my association's perspective. Um, but this proposal uh, would give what approximately $5,260 um, to eligible students. Eligible students fall into the category of folks that are enrolled in or would be as they were entering kindergarten uh, into um, 34 schools that fall into the bottom 5% performing um, school districts based on um, rubric that uh, is, is kind of based off of a classification by the Every Student Succeeds Act or ESSA um, and schools that are basically identified as comprehensive and in need of support. I can't remember exactly what the language is, but these are districts um, that also generally speaking, have elevated uh, numbers of enrolled students who qualify for free and reduced lunch, for example. Um, and they actually cover both urban and rural districts of these 34 schools, but there are approximately 10,200 students that fall under the enrollment of these 34 uh, schools. And this voucher uh, would enable um, at 100% eligibility or 100% implementation. So if all those 10,200 students decided to take advantage of this voucher program, we would look, we'd be looking at a price tag near $54 million that would go with those students to uh, the non-public uh, schools uh, of their choice. And at a time when, again, we just got done talking about the inadequate um, amount of funding that has been proposed to benefit the more than 480,000 students that our public school districts serve across the state, to set aside uh, a potential full implementation price tag of $54 million to benefit just over 10,000 students um, to us is probably perhaps the most egregious, never mind the part where non-public schools do not have to follow, frankly, the same employment practices, the same admission practices, um, as our public schools do. What would the effects of that be then on funding for those public schools? So our, as we started by talking about the formula, public schools are funded by an enrollment count. So if those students aren't enrolled in the public school, then the public school loses all of the money associated with that student, um, not including 
uh, weightings. Those are the special funds for special ed students or ELL, those things that are tied to individual students, not even including that. The average district will lose over $9,000 per student in funding. And there's been a myth out there where folks have said, well, only 5,000 is gonna support the voucher. So the local school keeps the rest. That is not true. You don't get it unless you count the student in the first place. But Melissa mentioned that half of these schools are urban and half of them are rural. And um, I just wanted to point out that, that you know, diversity isn't just an urban uh, tendency anymore. You know, a couple of the schools on the list, South Page and Ruthven Ayrshire are rural schools that have more than 70% of their students in poverty. And the way the ESSA list is generated, it's because of achievement gaps that maybe at the elementary school, you've only had two years to work with these students or three years. But by the time every one of these 34 schools gets to the high school level, um, I went in and looked up their graduation rates and the graduation rates for these 34 school districts average 87.3%. And that's better than the statewide average of 27 different states in the country. So our bottom 5% in Iowa when, it's, when you look at the total education package for students, I think is doing remarkable work given the diversity of these schools and the list can change. So even though your school may not be on it this year, as these schools improve and many of them have already improved their status. So the next time we give the test, there's gonna be a different group of students uh, and schools that will be eligible for the voucher. Well, and if, if I could just add on to that, I mean, I think one of the things this has really highlighted for me is um, the majority party, frankly, has introduced much of this legislation year after year after year. And frankly, the various proposals have been based off of language that has been introduced in other states, other states that look a lot different than Iowa from a public education perspective. We are very proud of our highest in the nation graduation rates, right? So our bottom performing 5%, to Margaret's point, doesn't look like the bottom 5% performing school district in Texas or Arizona, for example or even in Indiana or in Ohio. And so um, I, I think it's also important to recognize that we have heard a lot of feedback from folks that one, don't worry, it's not gonna be that expensive because in other states, only three and a half to 5% of the students eligible actually take advantage of this proposal, right? Which is why if we go back to the governor's original put, putting students first plan, she only has a $3 million line item in her budget for this program. Um, but I think they, in introducing this legislation, don't take into consideration, again, our Iowa-based circumstances. We, frankly, um, we are very proud that we do a better job than some of these other states do in terms of making sure that our kids of all diverse backgrounds are taken care of in our system. And, and I think it's also important to recognize that even if folks don't think the expense is going to be significant at this point, if we do look at all of those other state examples, this is just how it starts. So today it's 34 schools and it's the bottom 5% performing. Next year, it might be the bottom 10% performing, right? Or maybe we go after a different subset of the population. And so even if we buy into their argument, it's a $3 million expense this year, next year it could be a $10 million expense. The year after that, it could be $25 million. And so we, we need to make sure that public funds go to public schools. Well, before we wrap up, I would like to touch on something related to vouchers, um, but different which is charter schools. And that is also in the mix of proposals. And if, again, I'd love just a, a real quick primer on, on what those are and what that proposal might look like if implemented. Sure, so uh, Senate File 159 includes two different kinds of charter schools. 
And um, I think that the education community is okay with one and really can't stand the other. So I'll ex explain them in brief. The first one gives more flexibility to local school boards to charter a school within their district. So your school board is in charge. They find a unique need, um, a special kind of a program that they want. Maybe they want a science, technology, engineering, and math program with an arts focus, for example. And in order to do that, they wanna be relieved from some specific requirements. So this additional flexibility allows them to go to the State Board of Education to say, here are the requirements and regulations we don't wanna to have to follow. In exchange, we're gonna deliver this result for students. And they kind of have a contract with the state and go off and try something innovative. And we think that's okay. That involves our locally elected officials making those decisions on behalf of their students. The second method is the one we have real concerns about, and that lets an outside entity, a for-profit chartering entity, a university, a college, a, a business even, I mean, any, anybody, um, including a disgruntled parent group that doesn't like the change in attendance center boundaries because of where they might have to go to school, or maybe a school board in an urban center is making budget cuts, and there's one school that is so out of date, we can't fix it, you know, it has very few students going, so we make an effort to close that school. And then somebody says, no, we wanna have our own charter and keep this going. Um, those kinds of situations can become those really tough trigger points for an outside entity to come in and then divert that money. And they call it a public charter school, but it doesn't have a governance structure elected by the public. And, it, uh, and the public school board has no authority over that charter school. It's a negotiated agreement with the State Board of Education in Des Moines. And that's the one that gives us pause. I, but yeah, ISDA would completely concur with that assessment. Um, I think it's also important for the public to understand we already have public charter schools in the state of Iowa. And so to the first option that Margaret described, we, do, we do, don't know entirely why we need modification to accomplish that um, as, as you can already um, uh, ask for the flexibility, the innovation and in that capacity. Uh, the two charter schools that we do have, public charter schools are in Storm Lake and there's also one in Maynard, Iowa. Um, and, and they have appropriate accountability, transparency and oversight. And again, when we think about it from an accountability perspective, we elect those local school board officials on a regular basis, right? That would be the ultimate accountability. And if we fast forward to this kind of second option where a nonprofit organization, kind of a national movement organization, parents uh, and community members establish their own charter school that is um, only responsible, frankly, to the State Board of Education, folks need to remember there are entire industries built on management of charter schools in other states. And I don't think that that's a good model we want to get into, particularly when we look at some of the, frankly, um, I mean, many of them have been charged with fraud. Um, they've had different lawsuits filed against them and it doesn't best serve those students. The other thing I'd ask folks to remember is our state board of education is appointed by the governor, right? So these are not folks that frankly, we can, we can elect in or out of positions depending upon the decisions that are made um, at that level. And so we have long appreciated just the idea of a local school district knows what is best to serve their communities, their students uh, in general. And, and we're not sure why at this time we want to move away from that. Well, so we're recording this podcast on Tuesday morning, the 9th. And I'm just curious uh, for listeners who might've heard this and have thoughts that they would care to share with their legislators, what would be, um, what, what should a listener do? 
So um, we are encouraging uh, not only our membership, but also members of the public who have an interest in making sure that our public schools are as successful and as supported as possible to reach out to their legislators and to briefly, respectfully, civilly, right, um, ideally using their personal email addresses <laughs> to communicate exactly, um, frankly, what inadequate funding means to their school district. And I think we saw wonderful examples of that yesterday um, in both um, uh, the subcommittees, uh, the, well, I should say in the Senate subcommittee, uh, which is, allows public comment, um, to talk about what um, Des Moines Public School District, for example, being left out of that one-time money expense um, really means um, to those individual families. The personal narrative I think is always going to be frankly more effective um, than the, the, the talking points, frankly, that hired guns like myself use on behalf of organization. If you can have a conversation specifically with your legislator and explain what it's going to mean to your child, to your district, I think that's always um, more compelling. I think too, something we didn't talk specifically about, but is the house supplemental uh, appropriation that they set aside for um, school districts. These are districts that would frankly not receive full credit or a full portion of the $30 million one-time funding, even though they followed the rules, even though they did exactly what the governor asked in our emergency proclamations, even though they followed the DE's waiver application process, depending upon their community circumstances. And I think what was flushed out in that subcommittee, and forgive me if I'm speaking too long on the issue, was there was a, a lack of understanding about the amount of work, frankly, that goes into a district delivering hybrid modality or 100% virtual instruction. And there was just an assumption that unless a kid had a butt in a seat in a class building for a period of six hours, that it wasn't the same value from an educational perspective, that it wasn't the same expense to the district. And in fact, we know that hybrid can be more expensive, right? Uh, depending upon kind of what's going on in the district. And so what that really highlighted for me is we need we need people to illustrate for these legislators who don't have experience across the state exactly what their educational experience has looked like over the last few months. Well, Margaret and Melissa, I'm so grateful for you taking time out of that, you know, <laughs> craziness that is the Capitol or Zoom meetings in and out of the Capitol to, to join us to talk about these issues. They're really important and um, hopefully someone will hear this and um, share their story. 